From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting, though, with something that is getting a lot of attention. And you might have heard Dan Fumano with the Vancouver Sun. He was on the Mike Smith show not too, too long ago. He has been writing about a neighborhood daycare, an application for a daycare to expand. It was defeated. It was rejected by the Board of Variants. And just before we get to our first guest to talk more about this, take a listen to Lisa McCormick. She's the owner and founder of the Douglas Park Academy. That is the daycare in question and she was speaking on the jazz joe hall show yesterday talking about how things unfolded uh there's always family every every day we go to the park to take the children to play and people come up to us pretty much every day just oh how can i get in and do you have a wait list and you know so we always have to turn many 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 families away because we just don't have um any more spaces and uh yeah, so we were just trying. So we thought, well, because we live upstairs, we thought, well, maybe we'll try to put one upstairs and add eight more spaces and, and try to accommodate um, just the demand in the community and parents and families. To bring it up um, to 16. To bring it up to 16, yeah. So it would be eight upstairs and then a separate eight downstairs. Yeah. And um, yeah. And uh, so we put in our thing to the city, our um, proposal. Uh, and then part of that would be um, getting just. Um, thoughts and comments from the uh, neighboring houses Um, and the outrage just kind of poured in about how dare we want to do this. And uh, we were very surprised by um, what they were all saying because we've never had a complaint. Everyone has our, you know, personal phone numbers. We lived here for 12 years um, and uh, no one ever complained about anything to us. No one ever said anything negative um, about the daycare to us. Um, So we didn't think it'd be a big deal. That, again, was Lisa McCormick. She's the owner and founder of the Douglas Park Academy. Joining me now to talk more about this is Sharon Gregson. Sharon Gregson is a longtime advocate of the $10 a day child care plan, a child care advocate in this province. Sharon, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Jill. Thank you. Well, I'm curious your thoughts, and I want to play for you as well uh, one of the comments from those, uh, one of the people who opposes the daycare. But what are your thoughts when you see this story and what was proposed and the reasons why it was rejected by the Board of Variants? What a sad commentary on the state of some people's lives that they would be so opposed to eight children playing in their community. I think it's a a terrible, terrible statement. Very sad. Um, It's very disheartening. Is there any merit, though, to the the argument? A lot of the arguments that came against this were from residents who said, yes, they know that this daycare has been operating in the community. And it's the Douglas Park community, which is right on a very large park with a community center and a playground, but that it's had eight children uh, up until this point. And the proposal was to double that to 16. And some of the residents were saying, that's too much, that that's too loud to have a business operating in a residential neighbourhood. Well, what a perfect place to have a childcare program across from a lovely park and in a family neighbourhood with a community centre. seems to me that's a perfect setting. I do want to say, though, that you know we have to be clear that the way to solve BC's childcare crisis is not through entrepreneurs opening up childcare programs eight spaces at a time. That's not going to solve the problem. Um, But in the meantime, um, and to meet the needs of the, the families that are living in that community, I can't see anything wrong with it. 
I want to play for you uh, uh, just some of the comments. This is Jim Leto, who is with uh, the Urban Design and Developing Consulting Limited Company. That's his official title, but he's also a resident in this area. He was one of the many neighbors, it it seems, that went to the Board of Variants that were opposed to this daycare um, expanding, doubling in size. Uh, He was speaking with Simi Sarah earlier today. Uh, I'm curious your response uh, to what he told Simi. If you had four daycares side by side in a single family district, uh, I think that would be uh, uh, traumatic for the neighborhood. Traumatic. You think that would be traumatic to have too many? If you had four in a row, yes, lined up in a row, one beside each other. <laughs> Jim, nobody is saying that, though. This is one daycare center that wow. was already operating, and, and the owner says nobody ever came to her. No, none of the neighbors ever came to her and said, listen, we have a problem with this. Like, why didn't that happen? Why not talk to her about it? Well, in this case, I say that the processing through the city uh, was at fault because it wound up at the Board of Variants, and the Board of Variants wounding up being sort of a, a backstop for all the... Uh, complaints, the concerns, whatever in the operation, whereas if if this was put in as as an amendment to the zoning bylaw, all these issues would be discussed up front at council and incorporated as guidelines with the new zoning. Jim, can you understand, though, the way you're talking about it, and I understand this is your line of work, you're in urban design, so you deal a lot with the city and the bylaws and the zoning and all of those things. This is the reason why we have all these problems in this city and people complain about Vancouver. Well, I will say that if, uh, the purpose of zoning is not to make problems. The purpose of zoning is to make uh, make the districts work compatibly so people have expectation of knowing where they are and, and what's beside them. Sharon, I'm curious your, your thoughts on his reasoning, again, talking about zoning, that this is not what a single-family residential neighbourhood is for. Uh, he made the idea, or made the point that if it was four daycares, that would be too much. But again, that's not a proposal that's on the table. What do you say to, to that, that line of reasoning? Which, and he's not alone. There were others that made that argument to the Board of Variants. Right, and I'll bet that Jim, um, the person who was being interviewed there, really wants his own grandchildren to have access to a childcare program. And so it's a little sounds a little bit like um, not in my na- neighborhood, a little bit of nimbyism um, to me, because this isn't about four daycares side by side. And it's one of the reasons why we've always advocated for our elementary schools to be hubs for childcare settings, because that's where children already are. And when people move into neighborhoods, they know that that's where schools already exist. But it's really hard to argue about the trauma that will be inflicted on neighborhoods from eight additional children uh, who probably don't live very far away from that child care that they would be attending, um, being in the neighborhood, particularly across from a park in a community center. I just don't think that their argument holds any weight. Does it point to some other issues? And you kind of touched on this in that the the daycare operator said one of the reasons that she wants to expand is they have the space and she has people on a wait list and she gets asked all the time if she has space for childcare spaces that are open for children. Is that Does that point to the fact that not enough has been done to deal with the short, shortage of childcare spaces, whether it's $10 a day daycare or like you said, making it available in elementary schools and making it so we do have enough spaces. 
I would agree that the government, um, both provincially and federally, are not moving quickly enough. They're committed, yes, um, but they're not moving quickly enough to expand the number of childcare programs, working with school districts and municipalities, and they're not investing enough in early childhood educators to, to have staff in those programs. Um, and so, yes, they, that's definitely a push that we need to see happen to, to make things happen more quickly. It also seems like, and like you said, this seems like actually a really good spot for a daycare and that it's across from a giant park with a playground that people travel to. It's a very well used park. Is that not kind of the scenario where a lot of daycares are situated? Well, um, we do always want to have child care, licensed childcare programs have immediate access to green space, um, both on their own property, and certainly it's an advantage to be across the, uh, the street from a park. We also want to make sure that the educators have their credentials, that they're qualified educators. And uh, I, I think that the owner here uh, is not a fully qualified um, early childhood educator, but she hires somebody who is. Um, and so that's why she's so small. It only allowed to have eight children um, in one license. And so she'd be doubling and having two licenses. So there, she's limited on size um, because of the license type that she has. But yes, the location next to a beautiful green space is exactly where we would want children to be able to play. Well, it uh, sounds like the city uh, may get involved, that there might be uh, another outcome here. Uh, Sharon, we are going to leave it there for today. But as always, thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks for talking about this. Thanks, Jill. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, a lot of people emailing and joining that conversation over the daycare proposal, the expansion proposal in that residential neighbourhood in Vancouver, the Douglas Park neighbourhood. The Board of Variants unanimously saying no to the expansion, saying that was largely because of opposition from neighbours who didn't want 16 kids at the daycare. Would love to hear from you on this. Call the buzz line 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899. You can text that line as well. Well, or you can email me, jill at cknw.com. Share some of your responses a little bit later on in the show. Right now, though, we are taking a look at what is a very special day. We tend to talk about this every time it rolls around in August. It is Burgers to Beat MS Day, and this is a fundraiser. So far, millions have been raised. It's a collaboration between A&W Canada and MS Canada to raise much-needed funding for more research into figuring out why Canada has such large rates of MS and finding ways to cure and hopefully someday prevent the disease. Well, joining me to talk more about this is Dr. Pamela Valentine, the president of MS Canada, and Susan Senecal, who is the president and CEO of A&W Food Services of Canada. Thank you so much to both of you for being with us. Thank you for having us. Yes, great to be here. Thank you. Well, let's talk about what's happening at A&W. We'll talk about that in just a couple of moments. But Dr. Valentine, I was hoping to start with you because I know we talk about this annual event, but the research is ongoing every day and there are breakthroughs, I know, and some promising research. So talk a bit, if you can, about what is new and and when we're talking about diagnosing and treating and hopefully one day preventing MS. Yeah, well, for sure. Canada has uh, the highest rate of MS in the world. We see 12 Canadians every day diagnosed in this country. There's a huge amount of effort underway, not only within Canada, but at a global level, to try and find answers 
to better understand this disease and, and hopefully find a pathway to, to a cure. Um, we've made a lot of progress in the last 15 years during which we've had this fantastic relationship with ANW. There's many more treatments and more effective treatments today than there were 15 years ago that has made a real difference for the quality of people's lives, for um, the, the length of people's lives, and for the offsetting of, of um, greater uh, levels of disability. Um, but there's still lots to do, and uh, we're really excited to, to continue to be able to work with ANW to, to get the answers that people living with MS uh, need. And uh, Susan, I'll bring you in on this now too. And again, we've talked about this in years previous, but today is a big day as far as raising money. So tell us a bit more. How can people do that, getting involved with Burgers to Beat MS? Sure. Well, uh, today is Burgers to Beat MS Day, and $2 from every teen burger sold today go directly to the MS Canada efforts to help people that are touched by MS. And so you can drop by an W. Buy a teen burger, that's easy. $2 will automatically go to the MS Canada, as well as um, there's ways to donate online, burgers2beatms.ca. You can also just round up your bill or make a donation at a restaurant. Uh, we, we try and make it really, really easy, and we have very ambitious targets this year. We expect to raise over $2 million on um, during this campaign, which will make our total of funds raised over the last 15 years, because it is our 15th anniversary, uh, to over $20 million, so hoping to make an even more meaningful difference with the funds collected this year. Oh, that's uh, impressive. It's uh, such a, a large amount of money raised to, to help with this research. Uh, and Dr. Valentine, uh, going back to something that you said, that there are better treatments now and, and better ways for people to live with this illness and to live with this disease. Uh, how has that changed as far as, is it finding, I know we still don't know what really causes this and why Canada has such a large rate, but is it figuring out how, how to better manage it? Uh, for sure. We've gone in that 15-year window from about three uh, disease-modifying therapies or medications that were available to now 19 uh, available in Canada that have been certainly more effective. Um, we continue to try and understand the mechanisms of the disease and therefore be able to get better and better at, at treatment, but there's also a lot of scientific discovery that has taught us a bit about the risk factors of MS that I I'm pretty hopeful will allow us to prevent the disease from happening in, in, the, in the future. And what, what kind of risk factors are you seeing or is that uncovering? When I know in the past we've talked about, is it climate? Is it uh, lack of sunshine? And, and trying to figure out as well why women seem to be more susceptible to MS than men. Yeah, well, women are affected three times more often um, with MS than men. I, li I like to describe it as the perfect storm. There's probably a genetic predisposition. It's a pretty complicated genetic picture. More than 200 genetic loci have been associated with the disease. And then you stack with that a certain set of environmental factors and you see disease uh, expression. And we certainly have identified things like, as, as you point out, vitamin D, um, lifestyle habits. Uh, so, so we think about obesity, we think about smoking, a number of things that, that have risk factor for disease generally. But increasingly, there's also evidence that some viruses, and in particular, the Epstein-Barr virus, uh, is a, a strong predictor of, of disease. 
Hmm. And and that seems like that that was uh, I, I was looking at that and reading about that, and that seems like that is I don't know if we call it a breakthrough, but but it it offers up or seems like that would offer up a whole new area of research or something to focus on. For sure, I think the story's been building over the last number of years, but there was a military database that looked back twenty years and uh, looked at those individuals who ended up with MS. And um, what we now know is that EBV um, is about a 32-fold increase in risk factor for um, eventually having expression of the disease. So it's for sure an opportunity for us to be thinking about the prevention side of the equation. Are, are you seeing any change as well in the different types of MS, whether we're talking about Canadians living with relapsing, remitting, or, or progressive, or primary progressive, and, and the different types and how, how those are, are responding to treatments? Um, well, there certainly has been identified clinically, as you, as you point out, episodic forms of the disease for which somebody might have an episode and, and see um, symptoms and then they may get better again. Um, there's other types which are more progressive in their uh, expression. Certainly, um, there is a progressive underlying mechanism for a lot of people living with the disease. In the clinical world, we're beginning to understand what some of those um, um, underlying mechanisms are, and I think there's a lot of discussion amongst the clinic, clinicians in, in Canada about how to best diagnosed and whether those categories are as discreet as they might have once been thought of. Well, it's, it's so uh, interesting to hear about the research and what's being done. Uh, Susan, I want to bring you back in, uh, if I can, and uh, again, talking about A&W's involvement. Why was it important? Uh, like you said, this is 15 years that A&W has been doing Burgers to Beat MS Day. Why was it important for A&W to get involved with this campaign? Well, it was really our operators who wanted to um, engage together and have a collective effort. Each of them does so much in their own communities, but we wanted to make a bigger difference right across Canada. And so we started out by partnering with the MS Society uh, for a year to see how it all went. And what we were really impressed with was the ability for our staff in the restaurant, for our operators to connect directly with people touched uh, by MS in different communities across Canada. You know, we're a Canadian company. This is called Canada's Disease. And we thought that it was an important cause to support and uh, very, very impressed with the progress that the researchers have made over that period of time. So we can see progress and we can see hope. Well, and again, can you uh, remind people again that uh, this is happening today and what can people do again to uh, support this and to get involved? They just need to um, drop by any A&W restaurant, uh, buy a teen burger, $2 goes to MS Canada. Uh, you can also donate online at burgers to beat MS. Or you can drop off a donation at the restaurant or round up your bill if you're buying anything at A&W. So it's an easy, exciting, tasty day to be at A&W and to support the cause. And uh, Dr. Valentine, again, those numbers as well, the, the goal of, of raising the $2 million, $20 million over the 15 years of this campaign, is it safe to say that that, that money has directly led to this research or some of what we're talking about today is a result of fundraising like this? Yeah, for sure. Uh, the, the contribution that the A&W family uh, and all its franchisees at, at, at every uh, place across Canada has absolutely contributed to making the quality of life of Canadians living with this disease better. It has led to new treatments, which have made an enormous difference. 
Well, thanks so much to both of you again. I know it's a very busy day, but hopefully this will get people wanting some of those burgers and supporting the campaign. Thanks again to both of you so much for doing this. Thank you for having us. Coming up a little later on in the show, we are going to learn more about what's happening with BC Ferries, the coastal celebration in for repairs once again, some cancelled sailings. We'll have the very latest on that. But right now, we are taking a look at what is happening in Yellowknife. And you may have heard on the news that that community has been placed under an evacuation order, people being told to get out of that city. Have you ever seen anything like this? Nope. Nope. Sit down. And did you have booked this flight already? Or yes, I booked it last week. Was it a lot of money to get out of here? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> but worth it to, to Yeah, I don't know the exact because my daughter booked it. But it was like $400 extra. How I happy are, like are you that you're leaving? Do you, what, what are you, how are you feeling at this moment? Well, I'm glad to be able to get out. But I'm sad that it has, you know, we have to leave, of course. One of many Yellowknife residents told to leave that area because of a wildfire that is burning closer and closer to that town. The government there telling residents they need to evacuate. We are also going to see the evacuation of some residents of long-term care facilities in Yellowknife. And those residents will be brought to Vancouver. There will be ambulances standing by tomorrow at the South Terminal in Vancouver to help facilitate that. But we wanted to talk more about that specifically as well. As we heard from fire officials in BC, the next 24 to 48 hours could be a very difficult time for wildfires in this province as well. So how does that impact long-term care? Terry Lake joins us now, the CEO of BC Care Providers. Terry, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, Starting with what's happening in Yellowknife and with ambulances, they will be set to to receive about 65 patients from long-term care facilities and care homes in Yellowknife. Uh, How how challenging is something like that to transfer people, to get them out of an area that's now under evacuation order? Well, it's very challenging, which is, I think, why they're doing it uh, now before that fire gets too close. I mean, they may never have to evacuate everybody um, you know they're but they're being proactive because these are the most difficult people to move they have uh, very high needs obviously physical needs Uh, many have dementia and so it's not just a matter of you know packing up a bag and getting on a plane or a bus and getting out you 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 really need to uh, have special transportation Uh, you need uh, people to assist so it's a, a, a greater logistical challenge when you're dealing with long-term care patients than uh, dealing with, um, you know, your average uh, citizen in that situation. And, and we learned two years ago uh, from the interior just how difficult that is, particularly if you leave it to the last minute. Um, interior health uh, had a real challenge getting people out of merit last year. Uh, drove to Kelowna only to find out that the airport had closed down and so, you know, had to reverse course. And eventually uh, all those long-term care residents got placed uh, down here in the lower mainland. But it was a supreme challenge. So I think, you know, we're learning from our experiences in the past. And I think that's why the Northwest Territories is taking this proactive step to move these folks sooner. 
And the where they're taking them as far as bringing, uh, again, it's about 65 patients from facilities in Yellowknife to to Metro Vancouver. Is that because that's that's where we could find, we will be able to find spaces for people and, and there wouldn't be any spaces anywhere closer to Yellowknife? Well, there's uh, no spaces anywhere, Jill. Uh, anywhere across Canada, there's really so few available long-term care spaces. So what happens in these situations is, you know, you, you have to create new spaces, um, temporary spaces in long-term care homes. I know the ministry is working, the Ministry of Health is working very hard with PHSA, the Provincial Health Services Authority, and Vancouver Coastal and other health authorities uh, to to make that shift. So they would have to perhaps put two people in a room where normally there's only one person. They may have to carve out some space in um, in uh, cafeteria areas uh, to house people. Uh, they'll do everything they can to make sure people are accommodated and well looked after, but certainly not in the way that, you know, a, a permanent uh, long-term care resident would be looked after. I would imagine that's also going to be problematic when we're talking about staff members and staffing levels in that aren't we already stretched thin with staffing the current uh, current number of patients? Absolutely. And so the health authorities will have to move people around. Uh, so some folks uh, that normally would be in the hospital might have to uh, come out to a long-term care home to supplement the staff there. Again, you know, I can't say enough about the people working on, on the front lines in long-term care. They've been asked to do this kind of thing time and time again through COVID, uh, through the fires two years ago in the interior, uh, floods in the Fraser Valley uh, two years ago, and now again uh, uh, this summer. So um, they, but they always step up and they always, uh, you know, look after people and their families and uh, hopefully people will be thinking of them as they're managing this because I know it's very stressful on families and sometimes, you know, uh, they can take out that, uh, that uh, frustration on staff that are trying desperately to help. Uh, but yes, uh, it'll be uh, all hands on deck um, effort on behalf of uh, the folks that are, are in long term care and perhaps from other parts of the healthcare system as well. And it, it makes sense, like you said, to do this proactively. If we have an entire city and all of Yellowknife is being told you need to get out because this fire is so close, better to do it now than try and scramble and get people who are the most vulnerable out. But this is also happening when we just heard from fire officials that the next 24 to 48 hours in BC is also going to be potentially some of the toughest conditions they're dealing with. They are expecting more wildfires to start. What does that mean, though, if we then need to start moving? Moving people at long-term care facilities in BC. Well, um, as before, we, we do what we can, and and health authorities have been very proactive in developing evacuation uh, um, strategies with. Uh, their own homes and with the contracted uh, care providers that work with the health authorities. So I know Interior Health, for instance, is probably the most relevant um, health authority in respect to evacuation plans, and they've they've been you know planning all summer in case uh, of this. In fact, we had one home in Asoyas that was evacuated already this year when that fire got close. Uh, they've been uh, back in for a couple of weeks now, and it all went very smoothly. But it is a challenge, Jill, and, um, you know, it's not just the fires themselves, but the smoke from the fires in the interior. I know when I was in Kamloops yesterday, uh, you couldn't go outside. And, you know, for people that, um, you know, were shut in through COVID and now they have to stay inside because of the poor air quality, it really does have an impact on their quality of life.
Oh, I wanted to ask you about that as well, the heat and the fact that we have seen several days of heat and heat warnings in many parts of the province. Uh, how, what kind of an impact is that having as far as does anything change when it comes to long-term care? Yeah, each health authority has a, a, a heat plan that uh, providers have to adhere to. So temperatures are taken in each resident's room on a regular basis throughout the day. And if, you know, it surpasses a certain point, uh, then uh, residents are moved into a, a cooler area of the building if they don't have uh, air conditioning in each room. Now, most of the uh, inventory of long-term care homes in BC, particularly in the interior, do have air conditioning and many more do have it now thanks to a federal program from a couple of years ago uh, and also portable air conditioners that have been um, you know, activated in the meantime. So really those, uh, those residents in care homes and retirement communities are probably um, you know, the best uh, equipped to handle the heat because there are plans in place. It's the older vulnerable people living by themselves in their own apartments without air conditioning that uh, we all worry about the most, which is why we always want friends, neighbors, relatives to check in on those folks and make sure they're doing okay. Uh, right. And and I was curious about that because, because like you say, uh, in long-term care, uh, easier to, to maybe access air conditioning and, and people are checking on you, but people that even I would imagine that are having home care visits or uh, those types of things, more important to, to make sure that they're doing okay. Absolutely. You know, many of our members provide home health services and, you know, they uh, will be keeping an eye on people. But there are lots of um, older, vulnerable people that don't have uh, anyone checking on them on a regular basis. And uh, older people simply can't um, tolerate heat the way you can when you're younger. Your body isn't as, as nimble in terms of accommodating heat and Sometimes medication that older people are on will interfere with their ability to regulate their body temperature. And sometimes they just don't pick up on the signs of, of heat uh, uh, stress. So they may not really realize they're in trouble, which is why it's really important to, to check in on anyone that you know that's living by themselves that may be vulnerable. Good advice, and we will certainly be keeping tabs and watching what is happening with the wildfires. Terry Lake, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jill. We are taking a look at a recent court case out of Ottawa, and it is raising some questions about cases of sexual assault and consent. And this particular case has to do with secretly filming and sharing footage of consensual sex and whether or not that constitutes a sexual assault. Well, according to an Ottawa judge in this recent ruling, it does. And this has now sparked a bit of a debate, certainly a discussion over how courts are looking at cases that involve consent and technology. Joining us to talk a bit more about this is Sarah Lehman, a lawyer with the Sarah Lehman Law Group. Sarah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, I know you aren't directly involved in this case, but I'm so glad you're able to join us to talk about this from a legal point of view. And when you look at this ruling, and I know that some others have commented on this as well, saying this is unique. It's not something we've really seen dealt with in the courts before. What is your take on this? You know, it is unique in that the facts are something that I have not seen being tackled by the courts yet. But at the same time, I'm really not surprised by it. Uh, given the prevalence of technology um, and the, the use of the Internet and popular 
social media sites and pornographic sites and things like that. It really doesn't surprise me that this has come up. And the ruling of the court, I also find to be rather unsurprising here. And to to back up a little bit as well, to some more of the details of this case. So this was a man who was actually sentenced to seven years in prison, less time that he had already served. He was found guilty in February of sexually assaulting two women, as well as distributing the images online. And uh, each of the, the women had consensual sex with this person, but they then later learned that he had filmed them without their consent. He had then uploaded photo, sorry, videos to Pornhub. Uh, a pornography website uh, using some pretty degrading language. And uh, the women testified that they would never have consented to sex with this person had they known they were being recorded. So is that something you think that the courts now have to, to make more clear? Yeah, I mean, that's all correct. And I think that the other important thing to touch on here was that the women suffered quite a bit of psychological harm as a result of these images being shared without their knowledge or consent. And that's something that the court considered in ultimately making the finding that any consent they gave at the time of the sexual activity was voided by the fact that this person had secretly recorded them and then distributed the intimate images without their consent online. So uh, unfortunately, I hope that this kind of um, situation doesn't come up again. Uh, but uh, I, I have no doubt that at some point it will need to be addressed by our courts again in the future. And do you think in this case, because this was a person who, and again, he was found guilty of doing this. So not only did he record the sexual encounters without letting the women know he then uploaded them and and put them on a site where they were seen and like you said the women testified that they suffered psychological harm that that this did have did have very negative consequences for them had if he had only recorded it, say say somebody records that for their own uh, personal use, they want to watch it again later. If you were, if somebody was recording that without telling the person, would that still be considered a crime? According to this decision, yes, it would be. And the reason that the court said that it would still constitute sexual assault, even if the images weren't actually distributed is that the person would still or could still reasonably suffer from serious psychological harm just with the sole knowledge that these images and videos could be distributed at any point. Mm -hmm. And so the ultimate ruling here is that if you make a non-consensual recording of a consensual sexual act, the sexual act becomes non-consensual. And and again, because this is something that we've, we've not dealt with a lot in the, the court system, is it, I mean, I suppose it could go to the Supreme Court of Canada. This was an Ontario court decision. Um, the Supreme Court has dealt with some similar things. I don't think dealt with this specifically, but but do you think this is something then that, that does need that uh, the, the higher court looking at it to make sure there is actual law on the books? Well, there is no indication that any appeals have been filed in this case, but it wouldn't surprise me if this or something similar to it did make its way up to the Supreme Court of Canada. We actually saw some pretty recent decisions dealing with a similar issue before the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, So it wouldn't surprise me if we saw this one go up there as well. 
Those cases were ones that dealt with the non-consensual removal of a condom during a consensual sexual act. And in those cases, the Supreme Court of Canada found that, again, the non-consensual removal of the condom would void any consent that was otherwise obtained in those circumstances. Right. And that was the ruling there as well, which makes it kind of similar, I suppose, to this, is that it wasn't even the non-consensual removal, but it was the fact that the partner didn't know. So there wasn't even the, the, the chance for somebody to consent or not because they didn't know what that person was doing. Yeah, so in those condom cases, if we want to put it that way, uh, it was made very clear to the other party that a condom was required in order to engage in a sexual activity. So it was an express desire that the condom must be used in order for the activity to take place. But then it was later removed secretly without the other party having any knowledge. So again, this is about informed consent. It's about knowing exactly what you are consenting to. And where there's a departure from that, if it strikes at the core of the activity that you are consenting to, it could otherwise void that consent from a legal perspective. Uh, One of the other uh, things that uh, came out of this, there was uh, um, a lawyer who was quoted in uh, the Canadian press story about this, was that, again, the argument or the the testimony from the women saying that they had suffered psychological harm. And the question was, do courts look at psychological harm the same way that they might look at bodily harm? Does this help explain that or does it mean or does it also show that there needs to be more clarity there? I think it does help contribute to the discourse around what harm means and what deprivation means in the context of fraudulent behaviors. So I think this is a very important part of that narrative. And what it's doing is extending the type of harm away from just simply uh, possible um, uh, physical impacts, such as, for example, uh, pregnancy or STIs as a result of the non-consensual removal of a condom, into the psychological realm. And I think it makes a lot of sense because, as we are well aware, many times people are very heavily stigmatized with great consequence as a result of sexual activity and sexually suggestive uh, photographs that end up on the internet. Um, People can lose their jobs, they can lose their livelihood, uh, they can damage friends and family relationships, and so on and so forth. So this is something that can have very, very significant consequences. And indeed, in this case, both of the complainants testified that it did have those consequences for them. Interesting ruling. And Sarah, I'm so happy you were able to join us to walk us through the the legal part of this and what this actually means moving forward. We'll leave it there for today. But as always, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.